For the rest of us, before Nick brings us deeper into God's Word, let's rise if we can and read from God's Word this morning from Zechariah 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy, filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning again. Let's just pray again for God's help. Father, we thank you for this marvelous passage of Scripture and this beautiful image of being made clean. And we pray for your help now as we turn to your word. You would lift up our eyes to see the beauty of Christ and all that he has done for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I, uh, I have become increasingly persuaded over uh, the past several years that Christian churches are among the easiest places at which we can become disillusioned. Really easy places to become disillusioned. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, bad churches where there's abusive leadership and the people don't care about each other or their community. I'm talking about pretty good churches where there are good things happening, where people are growing in their faith and they love each other and they care about mission some of the actually the best people who have the highest ideals for all that the church can be uh, are often those of us who are most easily disillusioned. And so I, I wanted to look this morning at how God's word helps us in this. And uh, some of you, I don't know how many of you have read the, the screw tape letters, uh, probably a number of you. It's uh, by C.S. Lewis. It's this collection of fantasy letters where a demon is coaching his demon nephew about how to discourage a new convert to Christ to try to lure him away from the faith. And in the very first letter, he says, one of our greatest allies at present 
is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic cathedral. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face. That's quite an image. I haven't seen any oily expressions this morning, fortunately, so. A rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing some religious lyrics in very small print. And when he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind filt to and fro between an expression like, the body of Christ and the actual faces around him in the pew. We, come, we become discouraged by the, the very ordinariness of Christian life and ministry. Scripture is filled with these glorious images. The church is the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the place where God is advancing his kingdom mission in the world. And then we just kind of look around at each other and at our life and it doesn't matter what sort of congregation we're in. I've seen this sort of doubt and uh, discouragement in myself. And I've seen it at others in churches large and small, you know, urban and suburban, extremely well-funded and on the brink. We have this anxiety that maybe because of the distance which we still need to travel, because of what we are not yet, maybe this is an indication that Jesus isn't really in this with us. And so what God comes to us in this passage to assure us of is, is that we are to, we're to advance in mission from a place of deep security. A place of deep security. Because he has fully clothed us. He's fully outfitted us, so to speak, with everything we need for what he has called us to. So we're to, to advance together in our Christian life and in the mission of our churches from a place of deep security. So let's look at why this is so from, from this passage. First we see in this little courtroom drama that Joshua finds himself in that, that our God has already made us acceptable to him. He's already made us acceptable to him. This is a point in time where God's people are rebuilding after having lost their land and being sent into exile. And now they've come back to Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the city, they're rebuilding the temple. And Joshua is the high priest, which means he has a critical role. Because he's the only one who can go into the most holy place in the temple. He's the one who represents all of God's people before the Lord. And so if he is not acceptable to God, the entire people becomes unacceptable to God. Their life with God will be nullified. Their mission is void. It is critical that he, of all people, be acceptable before God. And yet we see him in this sort of courtroom scene. And Satan, which in Hebrew is just the accuser, the prosecutor, so to speak, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the reason is that he is clothed in filthy garments, which means he's, he's unclean. He cannot enter the temple. And verse 4 speaks of Joshua's iniquity, a word we don't use that often in contemporary life, but a word just describing the, the uncleanness of soul and of heart 
that is being uh, exemplified, uh, that is emblematic in Joshua's filthy clothing. It means that Joshua is a dirty priest. He's an unclean priest. And the prosecution is actually correct in that regard. He's on the stand. The case is being laid out before him and it is an airtight case. So it would seem. And it's worth asking what was so bad about Joshua the high priest. Because we're not told about any notorious sin in his life, either you know, here in the book of Zechariah or in you know, the book of Ezra, which gives some of the historical narrative that Zechariah um, uh, is, is speaking into. He wasn't, as far as we know, you know, a fallen leader who had fallen to some scandal in the church or in, amongst the people of Israel, as some ministry leaders do. And this is one of the ongoing teachings of Scripture again and again, that even the very best of us have an uncleanness of heart, an impurity of heart that makes us unacceptable before God in all of His goodness and radiance and purity. And I recognize that can be hard to swallow. It can feel unkind and harsh. And it can even be hard to believe when we look around and sometimes see people behaving in ways that are delightful. As much as there is harmful destructiveness in the world, often we people are actually a pretty enjoyable bunch. It can be hard to believe that we're, are we, can we be that unclean? That we can be unacceptable to God? Isn't God loving? And, you know, I just, I want you to imagine for a moment that, you know, there was a, a projector screen behind us. And that, you know, your every, not, not even your actions, but just your every thought and motivation and feeling were to be broadcast for all of us to see. You know, every bit of pettiness and bitterness and self-centeredness, every bit of hostility or smugness or lust, just all of it. And if even the best of us were to have that happen, we would be absolutely mortified because it would be clear that who we have been is unacceptable. It's unacceptable. But the prosecutor in this passage, while he's right about Joshua's uncleanness, he is not taking into account the grace of God. And that is why the Lord, this, this marvelous good news comes to us, the Lord rebukes the prosecutor even though the prosecution's case is solid. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan, O accuser. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Look, this guy might be unclean, but I have chosen him and his people. I have said he's going to be mine despite his uncleanness. I have plucked him up from the fire. And there's this beautiful scene. We, we see him in, in verse 4. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And said to him, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And then he, a clean turban has come and put on his head. And this is just one of the most explicit and marvelous pictures of the work of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. This passage is going to go on to speak about the Redeemer who will come to God's people. And as the story of the Bible moves forward, we see that Jesus is the one who does this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That God the Father made God the Son to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. God the Son comes into the world in the person of Jesus Christ 
And he is completely wrapped in beauty and purity, living a life of moral perfection and love toward God and toward others. But he goes to the cross and wraps himself up in our defiled, our our filthy garments and wears them all the way to the grave and conquers death in his resurrection so that when we come to him by faith and receive his mercy, our iniquity is removed from us. It's thrown away as far as the east is from the west, the bottom of the sea, trampled underfoot, and we are wrapped up in the pure vestments that belong rightfully to Jesus Christ. This morning I woke up kind of early and I'd been up kind of late uh, the last couple of nights and I felt extremely foggy and so the first thing I did as many of you probably did first thing this morning was to go downstairs to the home where I was staying and to go straight to the Keurig machine and uh, it's one of those really quickly some Keurig machines make you just wait it's sort of agonizing to take for this one is really fast and uh, I started my IV drip for the morning Friends, we, uh, and, you know, who, who, I mean, who needed coffee? I need it. I mean, I just, it's an addiction. I can just confess. I'm just not right in the head if I don't have it. I don't fully emerge from the grogginess. Uh, it, it's like I'm fevered or something. So what I'm saying is that, friends, we easily, when every morning, you know, when we wake up, we have to come back and drink from this again. I'm not talking about a legalistic within 10 minutes of waking up before you eat your breakfast. I'm just saying that on a daily basis, You know, as a way of life, we have to find ways to drink from this assurance. This is why this was given to God's people at this time, because they needed it. Because they looked around and they could see how unacceptable they were outwardly. And they needed this, this assurance, to live off it, to drink of it regularly. So that's, so God has already made us acceptable. That's the first reason we see in this text for the the deep security that we should move forward with. But there's more here. God has given us a calling. He's given us a calling. He's given us a mission. He's given us a vocation. He's done this for, a very, for us very graciously. Verse 6. After, after Joshua is clothed, he's clothed first. And then the charge comes. The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you will rule my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. So what's astonishing is, you know, the Lord is saying to Joshua, walk with me and I will fulfill, you know, my my purpose for you and you will walk in, in in communion with me and you will fulfill the mission I have given you. This is the same sort of dynamic that God's people had always had and that we still have now once we have received the grace of God to now walk with him and to abide in him. And what is astonishing is that this Mandate this charge is given to a people who had already completely blown it. They'd been given the charge to be God's special people, to be a light to the nations, showing the world what it looks like to live life with God. And having completely blown it, the Lord clothes them and says, once again, keep my charge. Walk with me and I will walk with you as well. This is, you know, this is such good news for us brothers and sisters, in a cultural moment where we, as a people, just take this almost like perverse delight in catching people in their either failure or inadequacy or in some wrong they've committed. I saw a, uh, an interview with a pop star, it doesn't even matter who, but one of the pop stars who's 
incredibly dominant, you know, right now, kind of on the charts and whatnot. And she, she's very young, and she was asked about what her goals are in life, and she said, I want to make as much money as I can as soon as possible, because I know that it only takes saying one wrong thing, and the whole world will turn against you. <laughs> Just one wrong thing. One gaffe, one insensitivity or just alleged insensitivity or one actual sin whatever it might be and the world is ready to just sort of gleefully pounce and say gotcha you're exposed not so that you can be healed or restored but so that you can be trampled and crushed and in in light of our failure in light of our weakness our God doesn't come to us as a gotcha God he comes to us as a gracious God. And when our sin is exposed and we feel the weight of it and we want to turn to him for mercy, he comes and he says, I haven't exposed these things to you in order to crush you, but in order to clothe you and in order to recommission you. I, uh, I saw a kind of a roundtable discussion once. It was broadcast online. Um, you know, as many of you know, issues related to race have been quite highly charged just in our broader culture in general the last several years, and frequently they have been in the church as well, and in our own denomination. And uh, one of the pastors at this round table was a, a man who, he, he was, you know, a white brother, and his church was predominantly white, um, but he had written a book about what the Bible teaches about race, about God's having created every man, woman, and child in his image, and all of us being equally valuable and equally fallen and equally redeemable and of equal standing in the church. And one of the uh, panelists at the discussion, and, and you know, this is understandable, kind of challenged the author of the book for having written the book in light of the fact that his church hadn't actually made a lot of progress with respect to racial reconciliation. And the writer of the book said, well, why would I not write about it? Just because I haven't been very good at it. Like, just because I haven't really done a great job. You know, and it's not that he was belligerently refusing to embrace, you know, brothers and sisters who are different. He'd actually tried hard and just kind of failed. He said, why would I not continue to pursue this calling and to write about what God says? It's because I haven't done a good job. And it it sort of seemed like a counterintuitive, like instead of defending himself or saying, well, we have tried this, we have tried this. He just said, hey, you're right. Yeah, I know. We, we haven't been great, but this is still our calling from God. And, he, you know, he wasn't minimizing or excusing himself, but he was just resting in God's grace. Whatever failure, whatever inadequacy there may be, God still has a mission for us. And we're still moving forward. And so... Uh, I want to invite you to think about those aspects of your life personally or the life of your household, the life of this church or the life of our denomination where you see failure or where you at least see weakness and inadequacy and wonder. You know, do we, can we really uh, competently engage with people who are in this group or that group or people who are maybe really secular and skeptical? Uh, can we really adequately disciple our children? I mean, and where, where are the places where there's real weakness? We don't have to pretend those things don't exist. And I certainly would never, ever suggest that when there is sin, it, that we shouldn't confess it, deal with it appropriately. Or that where there's weakness or something we haven't been attending to, that we shouldn't uh, strategize and consider how to press on and, and do better in following Christ. But 
we can do so as people who at the start of those discussions are already made acceptable. And, and we can be free from the burden, the sort of like existential anxiety of like, maybe we're just not even okay, maybe we'll never be okay because of that which we lack. Final thing that we see here, you know, God's made us acceptable and he's given a calling. He's given a calling to his people even when we're unimpressive. Is that God has promised a glorious future. He's promised a glorious future. That, that his plan for building his people is going to succeed one way or another. It doesn't mean that every single one of our endeavors will succeed. That every church will make it. That every program or whatever it might be. will. But that the grander story of which we're a part, of the renewal of all things, it is going forward to the end that God has planned. We are a part of it and that is our future. We see this here, you know, these last few verses. There's a lot of mysterious stuff. You know, this stone with seven eyes. It doesn't necessarily mean literal eyeballs on a stone. That sounds kind of creepy, but uh, there's this promise of the branch. The Lord says, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, his fellow priests, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. This language of a servant, the branch, it's used in other places in the prophets and it's a description of the Messiah. The one who will grow up from the, the broken appearing stump of God's people as a humble, this branch, but who will grow into that which God uses to redeem the world. He is going to bring atonement and he's going to bring peace and wholeness. There's, it appears to me, sort of this compression of the entire work of the Messiah in his first and second comings, squeezed down into these verses. In that day, I will, uh, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. That's a picture of the renewal of all things. A portrait of things being set back to a place of security and peace and camaraderie and wholeness. This is a, a picture of Jesus who comes, who goes to the cross for us, who's raised again, and who then comes again to make all things right. Going back to the issue of race for a moment, one of our uh, relatively few but increasing number of African-American pastors in the PCA is named Mark Robinson. He's in Pittsburgh, and I saw him speaking once at this conference and uh, he was talking about these things and about the church's weakness and, you know, the progress we still need to make. And he said, you know, kind of with great authority, Jesus will have the church that he wants. It is going to happen. Whatever we see now, whatever progress still needs to be made, Jesus will have the church that he wants. And that was the context into which he wanted to speak as he, uh, or, or the banner under which he wanted to have any discussion about how to move forward. And there's something really remarkable here that gives us an insight into how to nurture our hope. You know, while we are, are sort of like the, the guy here in C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters who are just looking at the oily expression on the grocer's face and thinking the body of Christ, how to nurture the hope that we are moving forward toward that future. And it sounds somewhat counterintuitive, but you see what is said here in, in, in verse 8. Here now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, they are men who are a sign. What does that mean? 
when the Lord says to Joshua that his company of priests are a sign. And then goes out to, on to speak of this kind of glorious work of redemption. It, it's as though the Lord is saying the fact that I, the, those who I have installed to minister to my people are still here. That I have still given shepherds to my people. That I have still given a mandate to my people is an indication that I haven't abandoned you yet. Not because they're so marvelous or competent or because, you know, your pastors are so spectacular. But because it's a, it's a sign that God is still working things out. And my, my, my point in bringing this up is actually not to draw your attention specifically to me or to anyone else who's a pastor. But to the fact that God, throughout all of history, has used incredibly ordinary means to nurture the hope of his people. Our ordinary fellowship and love for one another. Our ordinary worship. The ordinary preaching of the word. Your ordinary time in prayer on your bed. Your ordinary water and bread and wine. We look at these things and they function the way a cross functioned for a little boy whose adoptive father I knew in seminary who had to travel to another country to meet his child, his future adoptive child, and then I had to leave him there and travel back to the U.S. before returning for him. And he left his cross necklace with him and said, I want you to look at this, to hold it, and to remember your daddy is coming back for you. And so we are, we're called to just give our attention to these very ordinary means that God has given us to nurture our hope. And that's why we come to the table frequently. And that's, that's why we are, you know, uh, 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 just implored in Scripture to give our attention to God's Word and to prayer, not so we can stack up points, you know, in the piggy bank, but so we can drink from, from the hope that God gives us through these things. So I want to, uh, you know, I, I want to think for a moment, um, I want to tell you just a little bit about a number of years ago when I was a pretty, pretty young adult, I spent a semester doing this, like, young adult Christian leadership semester at a camp in upstate New York. And, uh, you know, it's in the Adirondack Mountains. And so one of the things we got to do was to go on a lot of excursions into the mountains, sometimes overnight, you know, deep into the wilderness. And the only person who had any idea where we were was the guy who led our trips. And it was astonishing. You know, if you had sent me out into the woods, I would have <laughs> gotten eaten by a bear or drunk some contaminated water. I mean, I would be done. But we had, you know, the leader of our group who knew the entire region, it seemed, inside and out. He equipped us with sleeping bags that were good down to four degrees, water purifiers, headlamps, brought a pistol in case a bear came after us, bear bags for tying our food up into trees. You know, none of us knew what we were doing, but we had a leader who knew exactly what to do. And he had completely outfitted us, completely given us, given us everything we needed to follow him. And this is what we are like as churches. We don't really know much. We're not really that impressive or that clever. We don't actually know how to build God's kingdom, how to reach the nations. But we have a leader who does. We have a God who does, who is with us. And who has given us everything we need for the life he has called us to. And so I, I just want you to go forward in your life as a church with that assurance that you're, even as you figure things out, we're already acceptable. 
We've been given this commission. Our God is with us and he is leading us toward the glorious future that he has promised. Let's pray together. Father, we, we are grateful that even though we are small and weak and that even though we have an ongoing struggle with sin, that the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ continues to be enough to cover us as you make us new and make us into the people you want us to be. So please bless uh, these brothers and sisters and help us to walk with, with greater confidence and assurance and security that these things are so. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.